Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. For him, I didn't realize at the time I said 18. It must have been a, a pretty complicated psychological load, actually, to go back to this place where he'd, he'd been parachuted in. And the worst bit of this um, story, I mean, I only have caught the way through the book, is where the paratroops are being dropped into the, out of the Dakotas into enemy-occupied France. And the degree of inaccuracy... Unbelievable. ...for which they're dropped. It's just so bad. I mean, there's well, the thing where they're either dropped too high... So they drift off the target zone into, into rivers. Um, there's a flood, so they mistake one river for another because it's much bigger than it ought to be. It's all dropping all place. But worse, the worst tragedy of the lot is the Dakotas that drop people too far. They're all going too fast because they don't want to slow down for their own safety to make it easier for the paratroops to, to drop on target because by slowing down, they make the Dakota itself an easier target for the flat guns. So these guys are still barreling through the flak to get out, dropping these guys out. And some of them are dropped too low. That tragic bit where they said the sound of their bodies falling through is like watermelons. Because they've been dropped from a Dakota without enough time for their shoots to open. They've just been killed. It's been dropped. It's it is absolutely chaos. No, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. This is the word podcast, and we're starting off with... Uh, okay, sorry, I'm very, uh, oh, we started. We're on a very light note. No, we're recapping the fact... <laughs> I, I, while I was, I'm David Hepworth, and while I was on holiday, I read Anthony Beaver's D-Day, and uh, Mark Ellen is just reading at the moment. I'm just, and, and so are so many people, I have to say. Yes. Some of the people listening to this podcast. And Fraser, Lurie, have you started reading this book? Or no, will you I, read I've still book? got to get to Berlin. Oh, you're started, a couple of wars no, yeah, behind yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're a few campaigns behind, behind. Fraser. <laughs> That's yeah. right, catch yeah. up. Yeah, you're the Americans. I don't want to spoil <laughs> the ending for you, though. Okay. No, I don't want to tell you what don't happened Don't tell me the who Germans. wins. Yeah, the Germans look like they might win. And if I can just... Um, we haven't done this for a while on the Word Podcast. Um, something I learnt this week. Uh, I don't know if I, I quoted this last week. The extraordinary thing that I learnt from uh, reading D-Day which is about the... Uh, did I mention this phrase on last week's podcast? I don't think I'm, I'm taking a terrible risk if, I, if I've done this before. That uh, on the night of D-Day, uh, three French ladies of easy virtue were running a brothel from a disused landing craft right. on the D-Day beach. Yeah, yeah. Which is... You know, creative opportunity. Which is... <laughs> yeah. 
says something for the unsinkable optimism of the sin industry. You know, the industry. The idea that Harriet Harman's ever going to wipe it out is, you know, pretty ridiculous. You know, when it can flourish in that kind of where six soldiers are gathered together, wherever six are gathered together in my name, there will I be. So the soldiers would have had French currency. There was a special invasion currency, wasn't there? They took all currencies. They printed. No, they printed a special invasion currency. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, you have met the the invasion forces. You know, right. here's here's five pounds or whatever. And a picture of Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It is an extraordinary story. I still can't get over the um, the weather forecaster, the guy in charge of the weather forecasting, the Scottish guy, who was in charge of deciding whether they could go or not, really. And they had a very brief window when the tides would be right and the weather would be right and the and there would be sufficient moonlight or, or not enough moonlight or whatever. And, uh, and this poor bloke had to be, you know, faced all the powers that be, Eisenhower and Montgomery and Churchill and no doubt Roosevelt on the phone and God knows what, you know, could he pick the night to go? And this the guy had to eventually say, yeah, all right, go tonight. He was 29 years old. I know. <laughs> this is the kind of thing, you know. He'd be on, a, he'd be on a kind of, he'd be on work experience nowadays. Yeah. You know, nobody would let him use the photocopier. <laughs> you know, whereas the people had this unbelievable responsibility at this time. But then prior to that, I think because I'm only just, as I say, just I'm only a quarter of the way through, but I'm pretty sure there's a bit where they say that um, uh, Eisenhower insisted on them doing forecasts virtually every day for I don't know how many months, but three or four months in order that they could then see how accurate their forecasts were, because obviously, two or three days later, you would see whether this forecast had any value at all. And, uh, you know, and still at the end, they obviously realised these forecasts were all over the place, as indeed they are now, Absolutely. in 2009. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone uh, who did or didn't enjoy their bank holiday, I'm sure, would agree with that. And, uh, and so, you know, these, there was absolutely no science to it at all. And the other weird thing is, when they sent this guy ashore, can't remember his name now. Tremendous uh, double-barrelled name. He's sent ashore. Do you remember from a midget submarine? He swims onto Omaha Beach. They decided Omaha Beach is where they're going to land the main. Uh, so the American tank This yeah, yeah. is, is the, the, the big armored cars and the armored vehicles. So this guy's job is to go to Omaha Beach with a little soil sampling device, which he's going to drill down and take 18-inch core samples from Omaha Beach, right? Armed, I think, with uh, probably uh, it was a penknife and a Colt 45 or something. And he's only on the beach for a short time because obviously it's an enemy-occupied beach. So he's got to do his core samples. And he goes back, analyzes these, and then goes to a meeting in Whitehall about a week later, where all the major admirals and the major military. Uh, uh, commanders are there and what he actually says and it's really touching he says I hope you don't mind me saying so this is exact quote what he says I hope you don't mind me saying so um, but this beach will present a formidable obstacle and there will be tremendous casualties to which the general replies I know old boy I know Right. So what he said, she said, his job is to go and say, is it, is it possible to land tanks on this thing or is the sand simply not consistent enough to be, I mean, would it just be too difficult to drive them? The answer is, yes, it'll be very difficult to drive them at all. But they've already made their mind up. That they've got to go. They've, they've got to go. go. They've got to go at some point. It's and you just think, and that idea that it's a little sweet way he breaks the bad news about, I hope you don't mind me saying so, but, you know. It's, the, oh, it's, it's, the, it's always the, th the same with these things, though. It's the youth of the people that staggers you. You know, the youth of the people charged with these incredibly difficult, unbelievably demanding... Yeah, you think they're young. You look at the forces they're fighting against. The Polish recruits they've got now into the German army in enemy-occupied Normandy. These guys, some of these guys are 15. Yeah, yeah. well, they were checking anybody to the front Absolutely by, by that point. Yeah. So anyway... Uh, do the GCSE revision. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yes. They're trying to watch Spaced. They're trying to watch Flight of the Concord. Hang on, keep the noise down. Do you think it happened nowadays? You know, can you imagine, can you imagine a regimental sergeant major? Trying to smoke a cigarette. Trying to, ra- trying, to, trying to rouse any of our children from under a duvet, you know, yeah. before 11 o'clock. It couldn't be done, could it? Yeah, but they normally wait till half past 12. <laughs> so they <laughs> miss the action. Yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> it takes more than bombs to wake them. Yeah. So, here we are, Word Podcast, um, having covered D-Day, the other major event. Of course, it's it's 70 years ago today, since the beginning of of the Second World War, isn't it? 70 years ago today since... uh, Hitler invaded uh, Poland. Invasion of Poland. Invasion of Poland yeah. while Stalin Almost looked exactly on. Almost exactly the same anniversary as, as, the, uh, as the album of, of, of Abbey Road was declared. There's <laughs> <laughs> another Beatles campaign. Oh, was, was that, is oh, yeah, that was the anniversary of that? Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's been Beatles Madness on the, on yeah. the radio all weekend. Uh, I haven't heard it myself. I've only heard of it. Uh, but the big story, I suppose, is... Uh, in you know the, the bombshell that is uh, Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher uh, finally falling out. Now, Mark, you've been, as they say, as they say in BBC News, you've been across this story I've been in the past. The story. <laughs> I have. You've been across the story for us. What do you make of it? Well, Mark? I make actually that I'm very pleased to be honest. I, I've, I've got a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts about this because I, I did interview. I think I interviewed Noel Gallagher. He was on the cover of uh, Mojo magazine in I suppose it was in 1994, I think, um, and it was the first time he was on the cover of a monthly magazine. Hurrah for Mojo! And I interviewed him and met his brother, and immediately, uh, this was just after Sibling Rivalry was released. Wib- sure. Wibbling Rivalry. Wib- sorry, Wibbling. Wibbling Rivalry. Sorry, which was a fantastic recording by John Harris, I think, wasn't it? Uh, it was just a leftover from a very early Oasis uh, interview, yeah. which he made into, I think, a flexi-disc, which is just hilarious, where the two brothers, then aged in their early 20s, you know, are falling out just to the point of physical violence, uh, uh, over what constitutes good music. Yeah. Do you remember? Music. Music. That's right, yeah. And that's why we're in it, you know. And you just think, this is just... How are these guys ever going to make this work? Because the relationship is just so bad. And whatever happened between them, happened so long ago, was so deep, that this is going to be absolutely untenable. And my reading of the situation, for what it's worth, is that, is that Noel Gallagher has done the most brilliant tactical thing here, an incredible manoeuvre, which is that he has apologised to the people of Paris and the good burghers of Cheltenham, who were massively disappointed because the group didn't play at these headlining slots of these festivals, and he said that the reason he's left the group is because he can't work with his brother anymore, who's unmanageable. So all the blame has gone on to his brother, and all the uh, support must have gone directly to Noel Gallagher, which it wasn't Noel Gallagher's fault, it was my brother's fault. Who can blame Noel Gallagher? Who'd want to work in a band with somebody who will leave, you know, 60,000 people, you know, waiting? Because um, they didn't they cancel actually at the They canceled a few, just, just they? A, No, but I mean, the Parisian one, I think, was it? They just literally were about to go on stage. With I think them. people were expecting them to turn up and play, yeah. Yeah, I think they were well, actually they, there. They, and they, and they, they didn't yeah. play the V the V Festival the weekend before, did they? In That's right, yeah. They didn't turn up. Yeah. Even though they were at the football the day before. Yeah. But anyway, the, 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 I mean, you could say that there's a counter-argument to this, which there is, because there's bound to be two sides of every story. I mean, it, 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 I can't think what the nearest parallel is, but the, it's something like the parallel between uh, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey. Pete Townsend wrote all the songs, the words and the music, and sings the backing vocal, and occasionally a lead vocal, and, but has cast a better-looking and younger and better singer as the lead character in these songs. In this case, obviously, it's more common because it's his brother. So you've got immense amounts of resentment and whatever would have been handed down by Noel Gallagher to Liam Gallagher over the years. 
probably a general sense that he was a bit of an underachiever and a bit of a slacker. So he might have had some terrible inferiority complex. But uh, sources close to the band have always told me that Noel Gallagher has never once, in their earshot, ever said anything complimentary to his brother in public. He's never congratulated his brother on a great vocal performance or a great live performance or, or said anything encouraging at all. So you can see that these things would start to, if that's true, which it possibly is, these things would start to eat away at both of them. One, a guy who is apparently has no career without his brother inventing a career for him and a character that he can play on stage. And two, a guy who is lumbered uh, with, with a brother who is incredibly antagonistic, but possibly antagonistic because he's never been terribly complimentary or supportive in the past, etc. That is my con analysis. <laughs> it's gone very quiet well, on the pod, well, podcast well, here. Well, Mark, you always tend to think that there's a plan, don't you? You always tend to think there's a conspiracy. You always tend to think that he's... I think there's maybe just a flounce, you know what I mean? He's just, he's just literally had enough. Well, the there's been a history of flounces with this band, haven't there? Okay. Not with Noel Gallagher, though. There have been lots of... Uh, Liam Gallagher's not turning up at various things, but Noel Gallagher tends to... Uh, yeah, he's, he's part of the old tradition of if you've got a gig, you pick up your guitar case at 8 o'clock in the evening and you go to work. But he's got his you retaliation know. in first. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was present at their uh, now probably rather, rather famous unplugged... I was at that too, were you at yeah. that too, were you? My God, what was it, about 97, 98? Something like that, with, with uh, Liam sitting in the yes, balcony. Yes, it was in a... God, where was it? It was a beautiful old Baroque theatre in central London. No, no, I think it was at the Royal Festival Hall or something like that. No, it? no, 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 was it? I think so, I remember the wooden boxes at the uh, side. Yeah, anyway. But anyway, you know, we were told that, that Liam Gallagher wasn't going to play. And I'd seen him before, in fact, and I'd worked with him. And I knew he was there, so it seemed extraordinary. And, and Noel came on and sang very bad-temperedly and rather under a lot of pressure, sang all the, the, the vocals. And then I looked up, and there, in the box beside us, yeah. I remember I was with John Savage, who, who was uh, incredibly involved in the whole thing. And very, very excited. There in the box beside us was Liam Gallagher, effectively sitting there, kind of smoking and kind of taunting his own Shouting brother. Shouting occasionally. Shouting, and she was heckling. Yeah. He was heckling his brother. And I mean, you've no idea what's going the, on. The same thing happened when um, Oasis did that uh, thing at the Royal Albert Hall, the Creation Unplugged, which was Albert Lee and Bob Mould and all sorts of people. And Noel did that with Liam sitting at the opposite end of the hall shouting abuse at him. So it's like... Incredible. He, he's basically... He's like the, the kind of ten-year-old who leaves home, you know what I mean, and goes down the road going, I'm going now! <laughs> yeah. I'm leaving! Yeah. Yeah. I'm never coming back. I've almost left. I've no I'm so nearly <laughs> gone. Yes. And it'll be awful when I've gone. You'll miss me. Yeah. I said you'll miss me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do. And then an hour later, you'll find them down the side of the house smoking. That's yeah, right. That's yeah. <laughs> See what time's supper. <laughs> <laughs> well, that smells nice, Mum. Because, yeah. I mean, they must both realise that they have, neither of them has any kind of future on their own. Not at all. Does it? Do they? Um, I wouldn't no. have thought so, no, Not because Noel Gallagher simply can't sing the songs as well as his brother. I mean, he's a pretty good singer, but he's nowhere near as good. But also, and you know, I'm not the world's biggest Oasis fan, but I get the feeling that even Oasis fans this week are saying, well, we haven't heard anything interesting out of them in about ten years, isn't that the Oasis fans will forgive Oasis <laughs> a lot. Will they? Yeah. You see, I, th I think that, here's my cod theory on Oasis. I think Oasis mean a huge amount to people who were of a certain age at the time. More than just about any other group I can think of. Yeah. They are, they are associated with a particular time in British history. And they have this immense kind of hold on people who were that age at that time. Yeah, I and was, always will. Have. I was a little older, but I was very much involved with that kind of thing. I was working in radio at the time, and Oasis were the, one of the bands we played a lot. And I remember walking down uh, Camden High Street, and every single shop 
would have Wonderwall or Don't Look Back in Anger blaring out. And it did feel like... Do you know what it was? Something was really happening. Do you know what was the strongest element in that whole thing? Patriotism. That was the whole thing about Oasis, is Britain has got itself yeah. a great rock band again. They, everybody convinced themselves of that. Because for about six months, the British media colluded in the preposterous illusion that Oasis were huge all over the world. Yeah. Well, they weren't. They couldn't get arrested. Well, no, the, but that's precisely points up your, your theory that they wanted them to be huge over <laughs> the world because they wanted there to be another British invasion <laughs> they, they, of the United they, States they manifestly chart. wasn't. Yeah, and, and, I, I, and, and therefore we were terribly disappointed when they didn't make it. But the truth is they hadn't even had a ghost of a chance of making it in the first place because nobody wanted to know and didn't understand them or didn't really like their music. I mean, part of the reason we liked them, I think, was because if you were that age, uh, at the time you were a teenager in what it would have been 1993, then, and quite liked all that kind of um, uh, old-fashioned rock and roll, then every single good characteristic from that music, was starting with, with looks itself, and stage presence, you know, which is a really important part the of it. The most important part. Oh, God, Liam Gallagher's looks were just fantastic. You yeah, know, he, uh, you know, imagine you... for a second, Liam Gallagher looks like Tom York. Oasis don't have. No. They don't even begin. No, no. Right. I mean, it, just every aspect of their clothes, their attitude, the things they said in their interviews, um, the, the internal dynamic of the group, and the fact that they had distilled all the great characteristics from all the groups that you liked of that type. Beatles to Stones, bit of both. It wasn't just Beatles or Stones, you know, all that stuff they got from the Kinks, all that stuff from the Yardbirds, I mean, all of that. So it was a perfect repackaging of all the very best and most attractive idiosyncrasies of, of 60s uh, pop music into an apparently contemporary group. And the other thing, I think, which made a lot of difference was, I'm sure we've talked about this on, on podcasts pass in, is that they didn't really have uh, fans. They had supporters, like, like the yeah. Happy Mondays yeah. did. Is they had supporters which went to see them doggedly, um, um, you know, uh, affectionately, um, uh, hopelessly, actually, uh, and supported them when they played, even in the event I probably really enjoyed the matches where they failed, the matches where they lost, which is where the singer didn't turn up, or it was just absolutely awful, or Liam sat on the drum riser um, drinking Cronenberg and smoking and never spoke to the crowd, or, you know, all those things that I've seen, I've seen them quite a few times, you know. And those, those sort of terrible bad matches were just a really important part of the whole... You know, the whole business of following this group, uh, as following any football team is. The interesting uh, feedback on, on the Word website, wordmagazine.co.uk, where people saying, you know, the recriminations over previous favourable reviews of, uh, oh, of yeah. Oasis records, which were clearly not, not as good as those reviews made out. And I was, uh, I was making the point, in defence of the people who said that those records were great, the media was so, you know, they colluded in the whole Oasis thing so much. Because if you put Oasis on the cover of a magazine or you had them on your TV programme, you did really well. Because they were Absolutely. so popular. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're in the media, when a thing like that's happening, and it doesn't happen very often, you can do one of two things. You can, you can either go along with it and go, yippee, it's brilliant. You know, it's the, you know, it's the old thing, how to lead a movement, find a parade and then walk in front of it. You know, and that's what happened with Oasis and, and the rock media. You know, Chris Evans, Q, everybody. They just couldn't get enough of it because there was a wave of huge interest. And there's no point standing on the sidelines like I would have done and sniping at the thing. Because nobody wants, you know, when everybody's enjoying a thing like that, when everybody in Britain believes that the England football team is doing is the best in the world, there's no, you're not popular if you say, hang on a second. They're not, are they? Yeah. 
because everybody enjoys that feeling. And then when it's you, gone away, they, they you, forget about you it. You don't want to puncture the balloon. No, no, no. Because the balloon comes along, as you say, very, very rarely. Very rarely, yeah. And yeah. it's completely thrilling. But, um, so how long have they been together? Uh, well, gosh. It's a long 90, time. 1992 or something started. Well, so it's, it's, King it's, Tut's Wawa. So getting off 20 years. They're nearly 20 years. Yeah. So twice as long as the Beatles. Yeah. Okay. Enough, boys. Yeah. <laughs> have a rest. You'll come back it's together. It's perfect. They'll have five years off, sniping at each other, and then there'll be one of those kind of uh, Eccles Cakes moments, as we now call them, uh, as in the, the, the eventual kiss and make-up of, um, of Damon Albarn and, and uh, old mate on guitar. I've got his name. Graham Coxon. Graham Coxon. Then they go out and have an Eccles Cake in the oh, is that? Yeah. They all go. Over an Eccles Cake, they, they patched it all up and decided to go back and tour. And that's what happened to them in five years' time. They were. It's, it's going to happen. Because also, the, the, the thing that struck me was a, uh, there was a parallel between this and Jordan and Peter Andre. You know, the, the best thing that happened for the Jordan Peter Andre marriage was falling apart. <laughs> you know, because suddenly they're on the front pages again. That's where they want to be. Where they want to be. And, you know, the, 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 so there's a, an unfolding story for the media to talk up, you know. So next time Lo- Liam and Noel are in the same country, it'll be all over it's the There are extraordinary parallels with that. Because, it's really? because what happened after they split up was they both gave interviews saying we never loved each other or even liked each other anyway. <laughs> so that's exactly what's going to happen with the Gallagher household. It's going to be the same thing. Definitely going to be the same thing. I remember meeting thing. the Gallagher's mum at their second album uh, launch. What was it called, the second album? Do you remember? can't remember that. Well, that's What's the Story, Morning Glory, What's the it? Story, Morning Glory? Would it be that one? I don't know. And they had a, a hey, I'm the expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take up up and leave. Leave. Uh, I let myself down badly, though. Oh, she the was one, just the one walking fantastic. down Berwick Street or wherever. Poland oh, Street or wherever. Mar Gallagher. She was absolutely fantastic. And they had... It was a, it was a very, very over-the-top... Quite a, not, not very well-attended, do, actually, because I don't think you know, people realised this was going to be such a big deal. They thought this was just a group that one... Yeah, a couple of hit singles and a really good album, and there weren't that many people there. And I remember she'd come, it was only the second time she'd ever been to London. And she was standing in front of an ice sculpture of the title of the album, which I think was What's the Story Morning Glory. And, uh, and it was very slowly melting. And she turned to me and she just said, What is that? And what's the point of it? And I find it very hard to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody who'd only been to London once before. You know, it's come down. And so every bad thing you'd ever heard about London was being confirmed by this. In London, they make enormous ice blocks spelling out the name of something and then watch it melt. It's always a golden rule. If you, no, very if, bad you get, food. <clears throat> if you go to a lavish reception for a, for a record, it's always a flop. If you go to a, one that's scarcely attended, it, it'll do really well. I did because they have, with... they have the big reception and the one after. You know what I mean? That wasn't the classic example of this. I think when Thriller came out, the Michael Jackson record was it Thriller? Yes, ninety-two. That you know, thingy before the one before off the, the wall. wall had done very well. <laughs> to us now, thingy him or oh, what's his face? Yeah, go on, yeah. <laughs> off the wall had done very Mate. well, but there was no sign of a phenomenon. No. And then Epic, who had the record company, I think, rang up Smash Hits and said, we're having a playback of uh, Michael Jackson's album. Does anybody want to come listen to it? And I think the only person who went was Neil, Neil Tennant. That's right. Isn't that right? Because yeah. Neil was just fake, kind of interested. Yeah. And it was a sort of an eccentric minority interest to be interested in going to listen yeah. to Michael Jackson. Slightly kitsch. Yeah, slightly kitsch. Well, Neil, Neil Tennant had this thing uh, on Smash Hits where he, he loved the idea of the underdog. Yes. <laughs> he only really liked... There was a time he only, Michael Jackson. Yeah, he only, liked, he only liked people when he went... Down the dumper, yes. as new one put it, as we all did. And so he developed an extraordinarily fond uh, fascination and obsession with people like Gary Newman. When he thought Gary Newman had peaked and was on the slide. But when Gary Newman was on the way up, he thought he was laughable, reprehensible and ghastly. 
the alien Elvis. Yeah. And then suddenly, uh, you know, once Adam Ant, once Adam Ant went off the boil, Neil became, you know, inordinately fond of the old boy. <laughs> Get your panto costume back on. Hoist that jolly Roger. Come on. It's like waiters and strays, isn't it? It's like looking after retired pit ponies. It or is. Something, you know? <laughs> I love that. It's Putting a little bit back. It's true that we, with, out of charity, I think Neil probably got the short straw, actually. Because somebody must go and listen to this Michael yeah. Jackson. Michael Jackson, he's still around. You know? So the, obviously the handsome playback at Soho Square with like five people, you know, and a couple of sausage rolls and some warm white wine. That was the level of yeah. interest in Michael Jackson's thriller. Whereas, you know, when it comes to the follow-up after the follow-up after the follow-up, they then really push them out, yeah, yeah. and everybody Which turns is the up. bad album. That's the terrible uh, album. It's always the case. Just, uh, just always reminds me of this interview I've just done for the, for the next issue of Word. With, uh, I've done a, a piece about uh, just a load of people, of um, uh, actors and uh, fiction writers and novelists and photographers, just telling you the five things they've learned in life. It's really interesting. They've got to condense their entire professional experience down to five things they've learned. And one of the people I talked to is a guy called Melvin Ben, and he's the promoter of, you'd know, from uh, Latitude, is the, is the kind of, he'd also done, just done Leeds and Reading. He had a, a company with Vince Power, huge festival promoters, you know. And uh, he came up with lots of really good quotes, one of which was, uh, the bigger the lights, the worse the album. And it's so true. You know, that, that if you go there, if you see a band, you are dazzled by a band. They've got massive super troopers, yeah, yeah. great yeah. white lights <clears throat> shining in the face. That is to conceal something. And what they're concealing is, quite obviously a very 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 poor quality follow-up record to the record you bought and liked enough to come and see the movie and promoting the next one the word a magazine a website a podcast a way of life so what have you learned what have I learned? Yeah. What, what, in the last week? Or, well, no, or, no, five, no, five things. If you had to do five, oh five things, are very five difficult things. on top of your head. But five yeah. things on what subject? Well, on, on your professional expertise, I suppose. What about magazines? Yeah, if you like. Wow, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> five things I've learned. Well, shall we keep I've back learned then? that, well, we, no, we can try it. Do you want to oh, try yeah, it? Yeah, I'm good. I've certainly learned, and it took me a while to learn, that uh, this is a, uh, a subject that comes up a lot in the people who, who um, email me uh, directly, which it took me a while to learn that... The people who sell magazines are not necessarily the people who sell records. Right. Uh, when I was the editor of um, Q magazine, would have been about, I don't know, 24 years ago now, I, I, I got that very easily confused. And I thought that popularity um, would just naturally widen the pool of available people to buy your magazine. And I was very keen on, even whether I liked them or I didn't like them, putting, uh, you know, I remember Notting Hillbillies, Mark Knopfler, um, I think uh, Phil Collins was once on the cover of the magazine, you know, anybody who had big commercial success, I thought was worth covering because, I mean, it's a big story, it's got everybody's attention. And it took me a while to learn that actually the people who sell the least number of records are quite often. Are very often. Really, really. I mean, the I'm, ones that people want to read about. Really want to read about. It's the people who don't who don't work without explanation, which is, I thought was the big success of New Musical Express when I was there. I was there in about 1978 to 80. And I realised then that the people who sold the NME were the people whose music you couldn't really understand without reading the sleeve notes, if that makes any sense. The Clash was a really good example. The Clash was an incredibly complicated group, and their songs were full of immensely complicated... I'll go, I'm go going on. to go further. I'm going to add Are something on? on the Clash. If you have a choice between, you know, t- take the, the, the zenith of the Clash... If you had a choice between listening to The Clash or reading Lester Bangs on the road with The Clash accompanied by Penny Smith pictures, the latter is a better experience. More exciting. More exciting. Yeah. Because those papers made those people far yeah, more exciting than they were. They were, absolutely. They romanticised them and mythologised them, you know, because that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with but the even- desire of 14-year-old boys to believe that something 
is far better than it is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's probably no different to what we were talking about earlier with, the, with, with, uh, with Oasis. It's just this idea this thing was taking off, and the, if you put The Clash on the cover of New Musical Express, it actually sold 250,000 copies oh, yeah. when I was working there. Yeah, yeah. And what amazed me is you go out of London and go down to see, I saw The Clash in all sorts of places. You go down to some Brighton or whatever, and actually they're playing really, really small venues. Yeah. And somehow in your head, you thought that The Clash must be... I mean, every single person who bought The Enemy must be going to see The Clash... But no, there wasn't no, true at all. No. In fact, The Clash were only selling about 60,000 records. So the enemy was actually probably four times as many copies per week as yeah. The Clash was selling records yeah. with The Clash on the cover. So that was a strange equation, which took a bit of figuring. Any out. more con- conclusions? Um, yeah, you might have to, I'll have to come back to that. I'm going to add one in here. On. People, uh, big fans of people, don't like to feel that, they're, that the person they like is immensely popular. They like to feel that the person they like is somehow unfairly legislated against and handicapped. Yes? They can't yeah. bear their favourite being immensely popular. Yeah. Because they think that, that somehow that, 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 that kind of diminishes their perceived taste about that person. You know, because we always say this about word readers, don't we? You know, that what word readers like is the underdog. Completely. They, totally. I, but I, at, I at the same the same time, that, at the Sorry? same time, they'll complain that the underdog isn't featured. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, but it's, it's a kind of it's a, it's a it's a protest point of view. You yeah. know what I mean? That uh, you know, I think rock fans have always had problems over the last forty years coming to terms with the fact that rock is now mainstream show business <laughs> entertainment, and in their heads they still like to think that it's somehow this this thing that takes place in a corner. You know what I mean? That everybody everybody is doing it is doing it purely for the love of it, and, and that's not- why the Clash works because they they got that right better than others. I suppose so, yeah. They convinced people of that, yeah. you know, that they were they're coming at it with a completely different point of view from Genesis. Yeah. Whereas they, actually, they slept under the I met the Clash and I met Genesis. I'm probably going at it a very similar point of view, really. You know, yeah, different generations. Well, not very different backgrounds, actually. No, no. <laughs> quite public school, the Clash. Different, different haircuts, yeah, know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. But probably, you know, yeah. they looked at it very, very similarly. But the fans wouldn't want to think that they looked at it in the same way. Well, we just had a, on, a, on the cover of Word, whenever it came out about two weeks ago, we had a, a kind of cult heroes story. And you can imagine what kind of, um, you know, nest of hornets that's turned up. Because if you say, um, you know, this is our definition of a cult, cult hero, then already you're on fairly thin ice with a lot of people because, you know, they don't agree with you. Uh, they think some of those people are too successful. or they, I mean, it's entirely, it's entirely personal extract, isn't it? Uh, but also they will then suggest that people they think are cult heroes. Uh, and, of course, then you won't agree with that. And it'll, it, it, again, it's just what Fraser was saying. It, it, they're suggesting people probably who are, are kind of theirs and, and theirs alone. And we're, we all do it. You know, I love a group called the DBs, which virtually nobody's ever heard of, apart from possibly you. And they made one or two really good records. And I just heard actually the other day because the, the lead singer has actually read something I wrote in Word magazine. Chris Stamey. Chris Stamey. Saying how much I like them. has got in touch with me and saying, great, can you help us out, um, you know, booking a few venues and we're going to come over and do a tour. So that, that'll learn me. No. And, uh, well, delighted they are. But, you know, it, it becomes completely subjective, doesn't it? Uh, when when I, uh, I was on holiday recently in Brittany, and, uh, and by benefit of the, of the web, we had access to, to Spotify. And my good friend Tony, with whom I was staying on holiday, um, he, he found the word reader's all-time endless playlist that they put on Spotify, you know. So yeah. everybody piled in with their kind of curious, idiosyncratic selections. This is the stuff I like. And, and a drink had been taken. It was the evening, you know. And Tony decided to just, frankly, get on his high horse about this. He said, what? 
the hell is this preposterous list? And started started kind of reading down it. Why has this been chosen? And why, you know. And, and eventually, <laughs> when I managed to get a word, I said, Tony, so what, what do you think it should be? And basically what he was saying is, instead of these people's preposterous, snobbish choices, <laughs> she's my preposterous, preposterous, snobbish choices. Exactly. <laughs> that's, you know, of course it is. That's the way it works, you know. And I think what everybody's got to, got to accept in this area particularly is, is we're all snobs. Complete snobs. We're all complete snobs. You know, don't deny it. But also, if you weren't a snob, you wouldn't be the sort of person who bought a music magazine. Because you've got to care enough. Being a snob, by definition, means you care enough. You're an early adopter. I watch Top Gear, and I love Top Gear. It's a brilliant programme. But the only bit I do not get is when they stand there trying to work out that's a naff car and that's a brilliant car. I think... Well, they're cars. They're kind of, yeah, they've How kind of you stopped doing that, haven't they? Cars. they don't really but clearly, that is what makes it work in the car world. Yeah. People who buy car magazines are the people who look at certain cars and think, I wouldn't have that given. Yes? Like, m- we might do the same thing about the Moody Blues Greatest Hits, you know? And they wouldn't. <laughs> you know? would do exactly. You just project your, your snobbery onto certain things. You know, so some people do it with thought. Exactly. Some people do it with cars. I quite agree with cars. I don't understand it either. I yeah. just think it's a car. I guess you've made a B. I don't really care what it looks like. Yeah. That one's cheaper than that one. Yes. Go for the cheap one. Yes. It's shit. Why is it shit? It looks terrific to me. Whereas, you but know, I go, remember, it's exactly the same as finding, as you say, finding a, an old Gary Glitter record or something in your singles. And you think, how embarrassing did I buy this? My God, how appalling, you know. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So, uh, what else have we got to talk about? I see Dominic Mohan has become the new editor of The Sun. Yep. And so that's the fifth former editor of Bizarre to edit a national newspaper. It's, uh, and I, it's, all, it's all added to my theory that uh, there, was a, there was a, has been a struggle over the last 20 years between the pop world and the serious world. And the pop world has won yeah. in absolutely every case. You know, it's just... Test match special having Lily Allen on, you know. You know oh, Newsnight with uh, Alex James from Blur. Or, yeah, just, exactly. uh, You're right. Yeah, yeah they, they, it's just chaired by uh, today programme chaired by James Cockrell. And, right. and, <laughs> and if you pick up a women's magazine nowadays, as I was doing this weekend, what are you most often reminded of? Smash hits. Hmm. You just sure, like, yeah. You know, the, the approach, the design, the, the lists, the all those kind of things. Except none of the scepticism. It's just taking taking out all the scepticism of of the 14-year-olds of, you know, 1984 and just... But in terms of tabloids, surely it doesn't really matter. I mean, I would have thought the pop guys are the right people, aren't they? Because the celebrity stuff's far more interesting to them than hard news. Hard news isn't selling the tabloids, is it? I suppose not. I suppose not. Yeah, there's a a piece very like that, actually, on the same subject in the next issue of Words, about a couple of weeks' time, about Andrew Collins, about what constitutes news in newspapers. And it is just so hard. I mean, I really feel a lot of sympathy for these guys because so much of it is about, is about what will happen. Because you can't cover what did happen because no. we already know about it. So, it's, so what you're doing is trying to get the debate started before the actual event happens. There was a piece on the Today programme, um, which I, I, I turned on this morning, and, 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 and Putin, the, uh, the, the, the Russian leader, um, was uh, giving a speech in Poland, I think, this afternoon. We were, we're recording on Tuesday. And it was about people trying to imagine what he would possibly say. This is an extraordinary, difficult and very, very tense moment on the day of the invasion of, of Poland, the anniversary. What is he going to say? Is he going to apologise? As if he could? Whatever. And all of that was a prediction about what they thought would happen. Uh, because to analyse it afterwards is virtually meaningless. Because well, it's gone. Because it's, yeah, it's gone and it's already been analysed to death by, by yeah. digital media. Yeah, you know. definitely, definitely. So, Mark, you're on your own at the moment. You're home alone. Wife's left you. <laughs> yes, again. She's <laughs> gone again. 
she can, she's still old as she can stand and she can't stand no more. Can't stand no more. <laughs> she, I know, I'm in the house on my own, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, I, I have quite long periods, actually, because she quite often goes out, uh, goes abroad. Possibly, I was listening to uh, Michael Palin on the radio, on Radio 2, uh, on a long car journey. God, he's funny. And he was asked about, it was such a sweet interview, and he says, uh, you know, does your wife not mind you going off on these travels? He said, well, it's funny. You know, he's so brilliantly kind of unassuming. <laughs> he goes, well, it's funny I get back from these places and it's not long before she pushes the old atlas across the kitchen table <laughs> towards me and, uh, and quite often just takes a sort of pin and sticks it. That looks an interesting spot. Ooh, and war-torn, too. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go, sweetheart. And so I think there might be a bit of that with my wife, actually. I don't know, but anyway, she's abroad at the moment. But Dave, always, I know where you're asking me, Dave, because you're always fascinated by the idea that I live in the house sometimes I mean, my kids have grown up and gone and I think you've got at least one possibly two still there yeah, 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 three at the moment yeah. yeah and your wife and so I'm rattling around this house on my own and Dave I think is phrase I think he's a little envious I, I think he's very he's famous because he once said to me <laughs> he didn't want to say to me she what's it like I said Dave it's I mean you know the first couple of days is, is ridiculous you just do everything at once you I, I walk around playing the guitar with the radio on and the television on and a DVD player with a magazine open and a book. Running the bath. Running a bath. <laughs> yeah. And smoking. <laughs> I don't even smoke. No, that's right. <laughs> we go back to the good life, aren't we? Cooking a steak. With a, with a cigar stuffed out in an old Indian food container. And, uh, yeah, and uh, you do all those things at once. And Dave said, oh, it just sounds fantastic. I said, Dave, if it sounds fantastic, why don't you come and stay? He said, I can't do that. You'll be there. <laughs> it's just to the purpose. It's true. But no, it's, it's my favourite. You know, that men are left alone. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I've done a long survey of this. You know, I always ask blokes what they do, and they always do the same thing, which is about twenty things simultaneously, and none of them properly. You know, that's the male. That's the male prerogative. Totally. But I was thinking about the good life. Did we talk about this uh, last time? That uh, that when. Um, Margot is not in for the evening, and Jerry decides to That's get right. an Indian meal. Four things. No, it's four things he does. Do you remember four yeah, things? Yeah, really and there, I really. I remember it so oh, well as a kid because I remember thinking, I wonder if this is what marriage is actually going to be like. <laughs> she goes to Glee Club on Thursday. It was actually what she did, if you remember. Margot went to Glee Club, and nearly always she'd come home early. And when she came out early, he was doing the four things she told him he was never do. And they were one, having an Indian takeaway, right? Two, playing Frank Sinatra, I think, on, on, his, on his record player. Three, smoking a cigar, and four, putting his feet on the table. And what they used to do brilliantly was that she would bang the door open, right? And there he would be, with his feet on the table. Right? And with one movement, she grabbed the cigar out of his hand, stuck it in the Indian <laughs> takeaway container, knocked into him so his feet fell off, and that knocked against the record player, which sent the needle skidding to the end of the track. Um, so within about three seconds, all those four avenues of pleasure yeah. have been closed the down. fun prevention officer fun had come prevention back. Is so funny. <laughs> At a stroke. I absolutely <coughs> loved it. Now I remember when he, uh, on that episode when he gets the Indian meal and the first thing he does is takes the top off it. Yeah. And then he goes around the room wafting the smell. <laughs> as he does, yeah. <laughs> so as he wants it to reek of biryani. <laughs> that's his... That's his male fighting back. I know, it's so pathetic, funny. isn't it? I know. But I love the idea that the, the, the good families living next door, the goods, didn't have those kind of domestic oh, right. things. And so yeah. you thought, wow, absolutely blissful. Yeah, yeah. to be completely devoted to each other. Yeah, yeah. So, Talking uh, of soap operas, I was reading in the Times uh, this morning, an interview with uh, Jimmy Perry, uh, promoting something to do with Dad's Army. And I never knew this, you probably knew this. Jimmy Perry was in the Dad's Army, did you know that? Well, in the Home Guard. Home Guard, yeah. Um, yeah. At the age of about 16. Probably, would be, yeah. Because he, he served in a concert party towards the end of the... Well, this is... No, which this is how he came to write... Well, this is the three things. I didn't know yeah. any of those things. Well, he basically... He's getting he's, on. He's yeah. in the dance. He's 80 now. And he's, he's interviewed at the Imperial War Museum. Oh, right. 
um, with uh, Croft's uh, son, I think, I can't remember. But anyway, he, he, yeah, he, he, was, he was in the, in the dad's army. So that whole thing was true. He, there was a mannering in charge who he used to steal the ideas from, the lines, and build into his character. Probably most of the characters, actually, in the dad's army platoon were people he actually worked with. After that, he was sent out to Burma, where he joined in an artillery uh, regiment, where he joined the concert party. Yeah. So the whole of It Ain't Half Hot Mum was based on, you know, all that kind of banter of that old musical. When he came back, he got a job in Butlins, and that's where Heidi High came from. So I actually, funny enough, rather naively, I think, I thought a lot of that was just fictional and imaginary, but you no, know, he'd actually written about three entire self-contained episodes of his entire life. There is a strong case for saying that one of the, one of the better outcomes of the Second World War was the number of people who got some kind of show business career who otherwise would never have got it at all. And it was probably a fairer way of picking out talent than, than a peacetime equivalent. Because it didn't favour people who had mad ambition. It just favoured people who, when they turned up in some boring posting, you know, can anybody do anything? Completely. Who play the piano or whatever? Well, Spy they Milligan. had a go. Spy yeah. and you look at everybody, all those people, you know, the goons and you know, no, Spy was the, all and, the and great singer, comic actors. We're in the, in the concert parties. That, that's how they. That's how they. They could get up and sing, you know, and sing at, at times of great austerity. You yeah, know, yeah. People yeah. waiting to go into battle. So Spike would get up and tell a few hilarious gags. But I don't think they're getting the same thing out of Afghanistan at the moment, are you? <laughs> I don't think there's no indication that uh, that they. They, I don't think they're having concert parties, are they? They're not no. dragging up as Kylie Minogue or whatever. No, no. I suppose you know. Once you there's no slug balance cheering them off. Do you remember Stephen Fry? No, oh, Stephen Fry with it. Oh, it was brilliant. Some guy has to be Hitler, doesn't he? In, in, in Blackadder Four, do you remember? And he hasn't got a moustache, so he has a, a slug. <laughs> Pretend he's got a moustache, and he calls it a slug balancer because he doesn't realise it's a false moustache. Oh, never mind. No. <laughs> so, have we learnt anything else this week? Anything anybody wants to add? I came across a really good website yesterday that I sent to Fraser yep. called themissinglist.co.uk. You were very impressed, weren't I you? I was, yeah. I love this kind of thing where people grab data that's available and manage it and make it into a, a consumable It's form, basically like your local service. crime watch, isn't yeah. it? You know, if, you want to go, if you want to know what's been nicked or terrible violent occurrences in your neighbourhood, just go to themissinglist.co.uk and uh, stick in your postcode and you'll find all sorts of bizarre range of transgressions have taken place near you. Obviously, some of them terribly serious. Uh, and some of them that frankly make you smile. Like, I was reading about one yesterday where the police raided the house in Portsmouth. Uh, I think in Portsmouth. And they reclaimed two stolen marmosets. <laughs> and, you, you know, it's good to know that the marmoset theft industry is still, you know, rumbling away. Well, the how many more are out there on the loose? terrorising small children and domestic creatures. Why would, why would you steal a marmoset? There is apparently trade somehow. There's a demand? Well, Abs- they normally just give themselves up. <laughs> what, what happens? <laughs> just adopt me. So, and, and also, there's a lot of um, lost and stolen musical instruments and bits of equipment, and so this is one of the places where people can post pictures of things that have been found. You know, so the idea of you have, you have something stolen in Dorset... It might turn up in Newcastle. So can and you, so on a can website, you, you, can, you can look. And can you, you claim it. stuff that doesn't get claimed? If you were after, for instance, like I am, a rotary valve flugelhorn and, <laughs> and one had been stolen that wasn't claimed by its owner, could you pick that up? Are we forming a concert party? Is this word going to have a concert party? You're looking for what? A rotary valve flugelhorn. <laughs> 
Is this a take on your holiday to... to oh, you're not going to a Serbian trumpet festival no, this year, this are year, you? No, not going to North Korea. Yeah. So, no call for that out no. there. You just want one of these things so you can, what, join in from the audience next time you go to a Serbian I'll trumpet teach, festival? i teach myself how to play. OK. Well, then let this... Why that particular instrument? Because it's, it's the one they play in Balkan brass bands. Oh, right. So, are you, are you going back out to... to not immediately. Not immediately. No. But I th- let this be an appeal. If anybody out there has got a, a rotary valve flugelhorn, please get in touch. You know where to come. Ma- be, yeah. Mail at wordmagazine.co.uk. We <laughs> eagerly await your correspondence. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. 